Um, let's go to chapter 20. You know, we, we just kind of finish out that, that 19th chapter with this, this picture of uh, this horrible feast. Uh, I call it the grossest feast in the world, you know, where the birds are coming to eat the flesh of the kings who stood against God. And we turn to, to chapter 20. And, and what I want you to kind of see is there's a progression that's going on, all right? And the progression is every single one of the enemies that stood against God is, is collapsing, all right? So all of, the, all of these pictures, you know, from, from uh, chapter 19 on are taking us to the very end of time. Um, it's not like they're separated by long stretches of time. They're not, but they're just sequentially given to us so that you get it in your minds that, okay, look, God is taking down the beast of the economic world, the beast of the political world, the beast of the religious world that have all kind of been tools that Satan has used to separate people from the only one who can save them, Jesus Christ. So as you get into chapter 20, we're going to get this picture that takes us to the, the downfall or the defeat of the dragon himself, okay? And uh, I will tell you that there's, there's sections in chapter 20 that get confusing to people. So we're going to try to keep you, keep you straight as we go through it. And uh, the first part of it, it can, can be confusing. Um, so let's just jump into it and let's kind of get a, get a timeline in place. All right? Notice how this starts. <clears throat> then I saw. All right? So it's telling you, John's saying, next up, next vision that I get. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, um, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Okay, so um, we see this angel. He's got two things. So you picture over here, I've got this key. What, is it, what does it fit? The bottomless pit. Over here, I've got a chain. Okay, now stop there for a minute. Where have we heard this before? but in reverse. <clears throat> Where have we heard it before, but in reverse? Okay. Well, let's go back to chapter 9, and let's kind of take a look at the key to the bottomless pit, and let's see who has that key in their hand. Go all the way back to chapter 9. <clears throat> this will make sense to you when you read it. Remember that in chapter 9, we have uh, seven trumpets that are being blown. And each time a trumpet is blown, uh, God releases under his authority another, um, if you will, I'll just call it scourge, plague, against the earth and against its inhabitants, not, not as an angry, vindictive God. Okay? I'm just going to stop for a second and say that because we're talking about atheism this morning. And if, if you've been in worship, then you got to hear from a guy named Richard Dawkins who reads the Old Testament. Right? And what does he see God doing? He sees God taking Israel and he says, okay, Israel, I want you to take your war force and I want you to go out and I want you to just abolish this group of Amalekites. And then you read into the Old Testament and you say, okay, here's a God who says, okay, Israel, I want you to take this, this practicing homosexual and I want you to take him outside of the camp surround him, and I want you to stone him to death. 
And so a guy like Richard Dawkins, an atheist, right, he reads through the Old Testament, and then what does he conclude? Well, what kind of a God is this? Here's this God that is this homophobic, right? I mean, he's got a laundry list of words that he attaches to him. Um, you know, man maniac, megalomaniac. He's, he's killing all these people. What kind of a God is this, right? Well, you and I read the Old Testament as well as the New Testament with eyes of faith. You have a converted mind. And so when you read that, you're able to see, okay, here's, here's actually a God who in the Old Testament particularly is, is working in a grace-filled way to do it, to preserve his community. And so, so what does he do with sin? We're taking it outside of the camp and we're eliminating it and its influence from destroying the very, the very people through whom I'm going to take the gospel out into the world, okay? So, uh, when you're reading Revelation, you're getting these pictures of, of, of a God who under his authority is releasing upon the earth these, these plagues, these scourges. And you're saying to yourself, wait, wait a minute, God, stop that. Just don't do that. That's bad. That's going to hurt me. And it, and it does, actually. And what is God's answer? Everything he does, whether it's the, the homosexual outside of the camp in the Old Testament period, or the commands to Israel, uh, or the release of these plagues upon earth, many of them natural, some supernatural, all of them are for one purpose, and that's actually to draw people to himself. Everything God does, he does for one single purpose, and that is to do it, to draw people to himself and to work faith in their life. Why? Because from God's perspective, physical death, physical death is not as significant as what? Spiritual death. Okay? That's why we hear these words in the Bible. Fear not he who is able to kill your body. Don't fear that. Rather, fear he who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Okay, so, so, so our God is always and at all times after one thing, spiritual life in people. Because now, once you have faith, physical death, it's going to come one way or another, but you will have life with him forever, right? So that is his focus, and it's why he's releasing these plagues. Now, if you remember with me, the fifth angel uh, in, the, in the trumpet scenes, uh, blows his trumpet, and what comes forth? Well, just look at it. A fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. Okay? Remember when we looked at this, uh, we said that's that, that language, star fallen from heaven to earth, really represented who? Satan. Okay? The dragon. Fallen from heaven to earth. Okay? The fallen angel. And notice what's in his hand. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Okay, so, kind of put this together. In Revelation chapter 20, it begins with the scene of an angel coming who has the key to the bottomless pit. But all the way back in chapter 9, we saw this angel that fell, Satan, and he has the key to the bottomless pit. Now notice what Satan does with the key. Let's kind of keep reading in chapter 9. He opened the shaft 
He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from that shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. The sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Okay, Kind of that picture of God's creation darkened under the evil that Satan brings into it. Then from the smoke came locusts on earth. Remember those locusts? Again, kind of a word picture for demons coming on the earth. They were given power, like the power of scorpions on earth. They were told not to harm the grass, nor any green plant, nor tree, but those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to torment them for five months. They were, were allowed to torment them, but not to kill them. All right, so you have, these, you have this, this scene of Satan opening up the bottomless pit. The demons are coming forth. They are able to, to torture but not kill for this limited period of time, all under God's authority. Now, there, there comes a little bit later this moment where God authorizes the demons literally to do what? To, to kill people. And that takes place during that very last segment of time on Earth's history. Okay, so go back to chapter 20. There's a problem you have to solve. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? That's the problem you have to solve, okay? Because here you have, you have this angel who has the same key to the same place, right? But notice what, what happens in chapter 20 of Revelation. The opposite of what you saw happen in chapter 9. Here's what happens. Look at verse 2. He seized the dragon. That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Which comes first? Which comes first? Nine or 20? So most of us would say, well, chapter nine comes first because that's how we read a book. We're Westerners. If I handed you a book and said, read it, you would read it from beginning to end. It's linear. That's not how Revelation works, right? If you try to read Revelation in a linear way, you'll always miss its message. How do you read Revelation? Like a Jew reads literature, right? Circular, circular. So it's almost like Revelation takes you from point A all the way around full circle to describe what's going on on planet Earth during that period of history that what? That begins with Jesus' birth and ends with his second return. Okay? So what will happen is I'm going to show you that picture one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. And that's kind of what we've been doing as we've journeyed through the book. You've noticed, right? Same kind of stuff, but each time we learn a little bit more about what God is doing during this time period on earth. It's the same thing here. Revelation 20, this binding up of Satan, I'm grabbing him and I'm putting him into this bottomless pit, I'm sealing him up that he may not deceive the nations until a thousand years are done. All right, I am going to suggest that this particular binding actually happens prior to the binding, the unbinding of the demons that you read about in chapter 9. That chapter 20's binding this picture actually precedes that. Now why would I say that? 
Look at the time period that we're dealing with. The thousand years. Okay? We call it the what? The millennium. So what is a millennium? Well, when you use, again, when you use ancient biblical numerology, the millennium is 10 times 10 times 10. What's God's number? 10. Yahweh's number, holy number, is 10. So when I say 10 times 10 times 10 equals, there's your millennium, okay? What it represents, the millennium represents that entire period of time that it takes to complete one circle. Okay. It is the period of time on earth, that perfect period of time on earth, from the moment that Jesus Christ is born until he returns again. When will the millennium end? We're, we're in it right now. We're in the millennium. We're in that thousand year period of time. Because the numbers, no number in, in all of the book of Revelation is meant to be taken what? Literally. They're all numerolo numerologically symbolic. So when does that thousand year period of time end? When Jesus Christ returns. Okay. So let's kind of go back to it. When, when the star is cast down from heaven onto, onto earth, there's, there's a sense in which that, that demon, Satan, unlocks and releases what? Hell on earth. But there's another sense in which Satan is what? Taken by God and bound during that thousand year period of time. He is bound. I'm going to prove it to you. And I'm going to use multiple New Testament references to do it. Let's talk about this binding. Because you can see it, right? This is a binding, chapter 20 says. Seized Satan, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit. Okay, so what kind of a binding is this? Well, when you go back into the New Testament, you get, you get to see a number of different scriptures that kind of point us to this idea of a Jesus Christ who has bound Satan. Now, the kind of binding we're talking about, again, this is all symbolic language. It's not a physical binding. It's not like I, I bound you up in ropes. But it's what? It's an authority binding. Under my authority, I will limit what you are, are able to do and what you are not able to do. Remember, Satan is not equal to God. He's defeated under God. And so God can at all times limit his authority. And you actually see evidence of this in the New Testament. Let's start with a gospel. Let's go to Matthew chapter 12. Let's go to um, just verse 22 and following. I think that'll be our best place for it. Matthew 12 is a long scripture, so um, I don't want to go through the whole of it. But if you look at where chapter, chapter 12 of Matthew starts off, is with this idea of who, who is Lord. And Jesus um, is being uh, attacked by the Pharisees because he's plucked, you know, he's, 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 he's done what they would call work on the Sabbath day. And Jesus you know, says, wait a minute, who is, who is Lord of the Sabbath? I am Lord of the Sabbath, okay? Go all the way over to chapter 22, and you see kind of an interesting scene. It says, then a demon, <clears throat> a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw, okay? So here's this, here again is this person, and, and the whole subject of chapter 12 is 
Jesus is Lord. He, he is the God who has authority over all things. Sabbath, demons, all things. Okay, so, so uh, verse 22, you've got this demon-oppressed man. He's blind and he's mute. He comes to Jesus. Jesus heals him. He now speaks and sees. Verse 23 says, All the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Okay, so the people are asking a great question. And when they ask that question, what are they really saying? They're saying, we know prophecy. You know, prophecy's always pointed to this king who will come who has great authority because he is son of David. He's of David's line. Could this be him? That's really what they're asking. Okay. Now, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they say, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Okay. So the, the Pharisees, they hear... Right, the people asking the question, maybe this is the king that we've all been waiting for, that torques them off. Right? They're like, whoa, uh-uh, this guy is not the king. In fact, we'll tell you who he is. He's a fraud. He's actually casting out these demons in the name of demons. Okay? Now, Jesus, it says, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand so if satan cast out satan he's divided against himself how will his kingdom stand you know what that's what made the pharisees not stand jesus right is every time they open their mouths and start talking what happens to them jesus throws it right back on them Right? And it just infuriates them. But it makes sense, right? Everybody's listening, going, Yeah, that makes sense. Why would somebody who's of Satan's house throw Satan out of a house? That will make no sense at all. God says, In fact, no, it would divide the house. Now, notice these next words. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is a really significant Jesus statement. What is he saying there? I'm God. Anyone and everyone out there, atheists, agnostics, all of them included, who tell you Jesus never claimed to be God, they're not reading the Bible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus, right here, claims to be God. If I cast out demons, right, by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. He's saying, I am that king. I am that son of David. Okay. Verse 29. This is the one that I really want you to pay close attention to. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Now in the context of this story, this man that he's healing is what possessed by what? Demons. Who's the strong man of the house? Satan. What is Jesus saying? I'm going to plunder his house. I'm going to take what he thinks he owns and I'm going to do what? I'm going to redeem it. 
Now, ultimately, what Jesus Christ is pointing to with these words is the cross itself. Because Satan and his house own these human beings. They own their souls apart from faith, right? And so what Jesus Christ is saying is, I'm going to spill my blood on a cross, and I'm going to buy people back, and I'm going to plunder the house of Satan through the cross. That's where he's pointing to. But in order to do that, guess what I'm going to do? Bind the strong man of the house. I am limiting his authority. So when does this binding take place? My suggestion is this binding takes place as Jesus Christ comes into this world and as the dragon comes against the child, he finds himself what bound underneath the authority of the very one who's already defeated him in heaven. He binds him even as he casts him down into this earth. Okay? Let's pick this up in a second scripture. Let's go over to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and following. And I love Colossians. <clears throat> this is, by the way, one of my favorite, uh, you'll, you'll see it, this is one of my favorite baptism texts. Uh, just one of my favorites. Look at, look at uh, let's go to verse 6. It says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And we could spend, we could spend a week just on those words, but I, I do, I love them, because there's that picture that you have of how deep are your roots? You know, are, are you rooted in Jesus Christ? And I, I look at a lot of Christians today, and I think, you know what your roots are like? Your roots are just so, so thin in there that it doesn't take much to whoosh, knock you right out, right? Get deep roots. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive, by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay? Holy smokes, that describes, you know what, that describes a lot of churches today, to be honest with you. Deceit, philosophies, but not Christ. Okay? When I walk into a church, one of the first things I'm asking is, are you preaching Christ and Him crucified? Is this about Him or is it about you? A lot of churches have become what? We'll teach you how to succeed in the world. You know? And I'm like, well, thank you very much, but I'm not interested in succeeding in the world and dying apart from faith. Um, help me understand how to have faith in this world. Okay? Um, so see to it that you're not... Verse number nine says, for in, in him, the whole fullness of the, the deity dwells bodily. That's who Jesus is, the whole deity. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. There's that word again, authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You know, for, for us, that language is not as significant as it, it probably was to, to Jews who are being converted into the faith. But it's a very beautiful picture, as gross as it may sound. You know, what was circumcision? You receiving the sign of the covenant. You're coming underneath the covenant love, the kessed love of Jesus Christ. Jesus is claiming you as his own. When does that happen for you and I as Christians? Our circumcision is not of the flesh, it's of the what? Heart. 
And so our flesh is put aside and we are made what? Sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Notice these next words. Having been buried with him in baptism. Now, I, I don't, I'm not going to say anything to put down any other church or denomination or, or what have you, but I mean, I, how many debates have I had with people who tell me baptism doesn't do anything? I'm like, well, now wait a minute. Uh, Paul says it does. In fact, he says we're buried with Christ in baptism. In other words, there's a burial that takes place. You know what happens in baptism? You die. Your old man dies. Your, your flesh, no, your spirit is being circumcised, put off. How do you know that? Just keep reading. In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful what? Working of God. Whose work is baptism? So I always tell people, like, well, I want to be baptized by this person or that person or that person or that person. Remember what Jesus one time told people? He says, I'm, gl I'm glad I'm, this is not good. You're, you know what? You're baptized by Paul. I'm baptized by Paul. So I'm baptized. It's not about who baptizes you. It's about what? The working of God through this water and this promise that he gives is this beautiful thing who raised God from the dead, who raises you and I from what? Spiritual death to spiritual life. A beautiful, beautiful picture of baptism. Verse 13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. <clears throat> Catch these next words. He what? disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Catch those words again. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. <clears throat> Man, there's a lot of stuff that just flows into my mind the second I hear those words. Who are those rulers and authorities? Well, Ephesians chapter 6 will tell us that, that what? Some of those rulers and authorities are what? Human beings. Right? That are being used by Satan. What, what, is, what does God do? Always triumphs over them. Disarms them. There's a binding that's going on. Who else are those rulers and authorities? Well, Ephesians 6 tells us that some of those rulers and authorities are what? Demons. Satan. What does God do to them? disarms them. Put the two together. Matthew. Who would rob a house without first what? Binding the strong man. How, do, how are you working this new life in people? I'm nailing sins to the cross. Under my authority, I am disarming those enemies that will come against me. There's a binding taking place. All right, let's go to one more. Let's go over to 2 Peter chapter 2. Okay, we're going to go through this, the, just the first five verses. <clears throat> it says, But false prophets also arose amongst the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many 
Ooh, boy, is this a picture of our day today. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now watch these next words. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to what? Chains of gloomy darkness to be kept unto the judgment. That's important for you to get. These angels are doing what? They're kept until the judgment. What, what did we see in chapter 9? Satan unlocking, opening up. Here come the demons. But wait a minute. This says they're kept until when? The second return of Christ. That's important. Why? Because the binding in chapter 20 precedes the release in chapter 9. Okay? They are kept in chains of gloomy darkness until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient word, but preserved Noah, etc., etc. Okay, so again, the, the, the question on the table, go, over, go back to chapter 20, is which binding takes place first? And I, I kind of want to make this as, as clear as I possibly can, so kind of follow me in this. What, what happens is when, when Jesus Christ comes into this world, that, that timeline that Revelation covers begins. It will end with his return. Okay. During that period of time, what the Revelation is calling the thousand years, Satan is what? Bound. Now, what does it mean to say he's bound? Here it is. Bound him for a thousand years, threw him in the pit, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until these are ended, and then he will be released for a little while. Okay? So this binding takes place as Jesus enters the world. It's not a physical binding. It's not like, okay, you're confined to hell. Is Satan able to be present on earth? Yeah. Are fallen angels, demons, able to be present in your life? Yeah, they are. So what does the binding mean? It's not physical binding, it's what? Spiritual binding. You're coming under the authority of God. In other words, what God says is, I'm going to bind what you're able to do. I'm going to limit what you're able to do. You, you can only go so far, and your, your power only stretches so far under my binding. When that thousand-year period, this, this perfect time period, comes to an end, now guess what happens? The release of the demons on earth so that they have power now to do what? To torment and finally kill in that half a time period. So kind of keep it straight, what we have going on from a timeline standpoint. Uh, we've got um, a binding that's taken place that we're seeing here in chapter 20 that actually starts with the entry of Jesus Christ into the world. Okay? Now here's what it does not mean Here's what it does mean. Let's kind of start with it. Well, here's what it doesn't mean. The binding of Satan, first of all, does not mean that he cannot seek after the weak. Satan is bound, yes. But First Peter, when he describes Satan, what are, the, what are the words he uses? Satan is like what? A roaring kitty cat. No, lion. 
seeking whom I may devour. So right now today, Satan, along with fallen angels, they're hunting. This is their hunting grounds. And we've said this often in our class. What are they looking for? That person who is weak in their faith. What do I want to do? Devour you. Okay, what does that mean? I want to kill you. I want to separate you. The killing is not physical, it's spiritual. I want to separate you from Jesus Christ for eternity. Okay, so the binding of Satan does not mean that he's not able to seek after those who are weak he is. It also does not mean that he cannot put people to a test. Ever think about that? Now he's bound. In other words, he can only test you so far but can he put you to a test? Spin over to Luke chapter 22. Take a look at this with me. Okay, so, um, so that you kind of have the context, I'll move through this quickly. But go to verse 24. And remember the fight that went on? That a dispute arose amongst them as to which of them was regarded as the greatest? Um, this is the apostles, and they're having this battle. We don't do that here. At peace, we never have that battle. We just, because we're at peace. But I'll just say, I'll just say, you know, why, why does Pastor Carl always have to come in the morning? He's like, oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. And then Reiner's gets out there. He's like, no, I'm more. Now, we have that battle every day. No, we don't. But the apostles did. They fight amongst themselves. Who's the greatest? Of course, Jesus scolds them. The kings of the Gentiles exercise, Lord. He says, who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Okay. Now, skip down to verse 31. And he speaks directly to Simon. And I don't know if you've ever really read these words in a personal way or not, but I encourage you to. Simon, Simon. Behold. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. I've prayed over you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, does Peter understand what Jesus has said to him? Nope. Peter's response is, does, not, does not fit the circumstance. He smiles and looks at Jesus and says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus walked away and said, Oh, Peter, you're going to discover exactly what I meant very soon. You'll deny me. Now, think about what's going on there. A couple of things. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. What is binding? Well, binding means that in your life and mine, Satan is limited to what he can do. He must ask permission of God. And that's what he's doing in this case. You have Peter, the strongest mouthpiece for Jesus Christ on planet Earth during the apostolic period. And what does Satan do? Satan comes to him just like he did with Job. And he says, I want that one. That's the one I want. That's why I always tell people, when you become a Christian, Guess what? Your life is not going to, like all these churches that are telling you, oh, you become the Christian, your life is going to be just wonderful. It's going to be happy. You have no more problems. The Lord's going to love you. The clouds will just go away from your house. Just go away, those clouds. Happy days. I'm like, what? What in the world is that? Now, I tell Christians, the opposite is true. You become a Christian, 
bam, target on your back. Every demon in hell knows it. And they go, whoa, that one right there, they just, they just became a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's go to work, right? You become a leader in the church. That target gets bigger. You become someone who God is using significantly. It is not accidental that you and I have had to watch time after time after time after time on television leaders in the Christian church fall. And I don't just mean a little bit. I mean some guy who's built this empire of a church and all of a sudden, you know, it's revealed that he's, you know, having sex with homosexuals and, and you know, hiring. And you're like, my gosh, how can that happen? Huge target on his back. Why? Because he became a leader in the church. Satan hates that, okay? So you can just see it. Satan goes to, to God and says, I would like permission under my binding, right? You've disarmed me, you've bound me, but I would like permission to get that one, Peter. Now, did Jesus grant permission? Well, just look at his next words. What does he say? He says, but I have prayed over you that you may what? Be strong in your faith. That you don't lose your faith. You know what, you know what Jesus did? How could he do this? He said, you want who? Peter. You got him. He permissioned him. Now that, that's, those are words that all of us as Christians, we don't like those words in the Bible. We're like, no, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Listen, Jesus, if Satan ever comes to you and like he tells, speaks my name, you just tell him, uh, no. That would be a good thing to say. Not yes. Okay, there's a little difference here. Yes, no. Say no. Why does Jesus do this? Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. What's going to happen in Peter's life? He's going to be sifted alike. It's going to be painful. He's going to wake up in the morning after he's denied Jesus Christ and say, what have I done? He's, everything inside of him is going to collapse. But Jesus says, I've prayed for you that you may not lose your faith in this. And then the beautiful words in this are these prophetic words. And then when you have turned, that you may what? You may serve, serve others. You know, and so I, I like to see, yes, Peter fell. He did. He fell. He was sifted like wheat. And you know what? He was found weak, just like we are. He did not lose his faith and was restored by Jesus Christ and in his restoration became a strong man for the church until the day they hung him upside down and crucified him on a cross. And Rome said, who is this guy? This is the guy who was sifted like wheat by Satan himself who fell but was restored and in his restoration became one of the great mouthpieces for God. Guess what? Many of us, all of us in this room, have been tested and failed. We have. And the thing I want you to recognize is there, there's a binding around Satan that would say, God would say, God knows you. He knows Peter. He knows you to the intimate degree. And when Satan seeks permission to sift you, to test you, don't think that God just all of a sudden says, nope, nope, you're a Christian now, so not I'm protecting them. Nope. There's times God will say, yes, I permission you. But under what? Under his authority. And I believe that, that, that the thing the binding represents is, is a Jesus who knows you and desires to even use 
the testing of Satan to, to strengthen your faith. That's why he'll use it. Okay. So the binding of Satan does not mean, it doesn't mean he can't seek the weak. It doesn't mean that he can't test you. Nor does it mean that he cannot oppress or possess. Okay. Let's look at this last one real quick like, and then we'll, we'll close it. Go to Acts chapter 5. Just these words, and we'll come back to this, but I just want you to see this before uh, we close out. Acts chapter 5. This is the scene in the, the book of Acts where Ananias and Sapphira, husband and a wife, have agreed together, we're going to go sell this piece of land, we're going to take all the money we get, we're going to lay it at the feet of the apostles. Remember, they sell the piece of the land, then they conspire together and decide, nope, we're going to keep some of it for ourselves. And then we'll tell the apostles, this is the whole price that we got. They're going to lie. Okay. When they come to the apostles, remember what, what Peter says to them. Okay. Go to verse number three. It says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Interesting words. On the surface, what it looks like is just this husband and wife who made this, this business decision and decided we're going to tell the apostles this, but we're really going to do this. Oh, no. When they come to the apostle and they lay the money at the feet, spiritually, the apostle knows that's a lie. How does he know that? the Holy Spirit of God. And how does he deal with Ananias and Sapphira? Not at this superficial, physical level, but at the spiritual level. He says, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Satan has been involved in your life. And he has filled up your heart so that now you would lie to the Holy Spirit of God. That's called spiritual oppression. Okay? We'll talk a little bit more about that because chances are high that as you engage in the warfare for Jesus Christ. Now, if you're just, now let me close this way and just say, if you're just kind of like a nominal Christian, Satan's going to be pretty content and the demons will be pretty content with some, some low-level warfare in your life. You start, you're serious about your faith? That's going to happen at some time in your life and it will not be easy. It will be hard. And yet at the same time, it's permission under God. Let's close with prayer. Lord God.